Well, fortunately, I didn't have to go to the bathroom, so because I could, didn't make it past the thing. All right, TMI. Sorry. Um, so, uh, what did I want to say? I wanted to say that uh, that was great. Everybody was talking to each other, and I, I could have just hung out and just talked to everybody instead of having to sit up here and be a teacher. But it's great to be a teacher. I'm very fortunate to have this role. Okay, so um, so uh, the, for those who haven't been here before, uh, what I do to just make this um, a simple uh, kind of focus each month is just say what's, what month is it and so what step is it and then kind of talk about that step. But I don't try to do a thorough... Uh, deconstruction and reconstruction of the step uh, in these classes. That's, I try to do more of that in the series that I'm just finishing up. Um, and of course, I try to do that more in my books. But um, I like to just kind of pull out some ideas, some, some piece that connects to the step. And as I said, April is step four. Step four says something like, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Is that what it says? Did I leave something out? It felt like I left something out, but anyway. I'm, uh, it's been a really complicated teaching week. This morning I taught at an elementary school, mindfulness. This afternoon I taught for Buddhist chaplaincy training. And tonight it's you. So sometimes I get confused about just what I'm doing, um, which blame that on something other than just my own confusion. Um, So I want to read this little piece that uh, I haven't read this aloud in a while, and I really like it. It's from someone named Robert Gerzon, and it's something I just found on the Internet years ago. Um, He has a book called Finding Serenity in the Age of Anxiety. And this piece is called, Is the Unexamined Life Worth Living? He says, I've always been fascinated by Socrates' bold statement that the unexamined life is not worth living. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't say that the unexamined life is less meaningful than it could be or one of many possible responses to human existence. He simply and clearly states that it's not even worth living. Why does he make such a strong, unequivocal statement? Socrates believed that the purpose of human life was personal and spiritual growth. We are unable to grow toward greater understanding of our true nature unless we take time to examine and reflect upon our life. As another philosopher, Santayana, observed, he who does not remember the past is condemned to repeat it. Examining our life reveals patterns of behavior. Deeper contemplation yields understanding of the subconscious programming the powerful mental software that runs our life. Unless we become aware of these patterns, much of our life is unconscious repetition. 
which sounds like it's talking about addiction to me. Unconscious repetition. In the big book, not so big, but the small version of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, It says after step three, next we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could, our decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. Same thing. Uh, This uh, article is talking about. Seeing the patterns of our life. I think that the fourth-step inventory process has, has... a variety of functions, but um, from a kind of Buddhist meditation standpoint, which is how I come at it, um, I think it's about this kind of exploration that isn't merely a listing of all our failings or everything that we've done wrong, but is a probing, an investigation to start to see if there's something we can learn from this pattern. And this is why we apply mindfulness to watching the arising of thoughts, the arising of feelings, the arising of reactive patterns. Not to judge ourselves or to even perfect ourselves and get rid of these things, but to start to see what this landscape is. What are we made up of? What is our personality or our our um, our ego, or you know, it's that just fundamental question. This is the kind of the surface of who we are. The the Buddha, one of uh, the wonderful lists. The Buddhism is full of lists. One of the wonderful lists is the seven factors of enlightenment. And one thing that appears in that list is the factor of investigation. That in order to become enlightened or spiritually awake, we have to investigate. The steps are telling us the exact same thing. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm just going to stop drinking, or I'm going to just feel my breath. Um, We have to be open to exploring and and learning uh, from what, what we experience. This is one of the reasons why suppressing our thoughts in meditation isn't ultimately that helpful. The way that we transform these habitual patterns is not by suppressing them, but by seeing them very clearly, seeing through them, seeing how they cause suffering, seeing how they are impermanent, seeing how they do not contain any core which is our true identity. One of the reasons that we keep thinking so much is that we think that we're going to figure something out. (laughs) 
we think that we're going to get somewhere. We think that something's going to be resolved. So there is an underlying grasping in the process of thinking itself. There are the thoughts, but then there is this underlying grasping for some resolution. When we see this truth, when we see these patterns, in the moment of seeing that grasping, we are seeing suffering. We are seeing the cause of suffering, and we are seeing how to end suffering, which is to let go in that moment. One of the ways that we let go is that we see suffering very clearly. When you pick up a burning coal, no one has to say, hey, you're burning your hand. I think it would be wise to put that down. You touch it, your hand withdraws immediately. Instinct. This is why being very open and clear about suffering is so important in our practice. Uh, you know, Buddhism uh, is sort of this upside-down religion in a way, upside-down from what people want from religion. What people want from religion is salvation, deliverance, happiness, redemption. Buddhism offers that, but it doesn't start you there. Uh, you know, the, the Buddha wasn't really good at marketing, you know, if he had been, it, the first noble truth wouldn't have been the truth of suffering. first noble truth would have been, the end of suffering is available. Come and get it. Oh, great. I'll sign up for that. You know, enlightenment. Hey. But he knew that if you presented that, that what you were going to get from people was grasping. And he said, that's not really the place to start. Knowing that there is freedom is important, but if you're focusing on that, you're not going to see what's right in front of you, which is all the stuff that's in the way of your freedom. So I said the the so he put the first noble truth as the truth of suffering, and and what he said was the wise response to that was to understand suffering, to investigate suffering, to see it, to watch it as it arises. That's what our practice is. Wow. That's what I signed on for? I thought I came here to get relaxed and mindful and feel good. Well, you know, that will come. That will come. But we can't jump over suffering. It's called a spiritual bypass. I'm just going to skip the bad stuff and go right for the whipped cream. You know, give me the cherry. Um, so we... Instead of turning away from suffering or trying to suppress suffering, we turn and see it clearly. Because that's actually the inspiration to let go. That's the motivation to change. I mean, why would anybody get sober if they weren't miserable? You, know? you just keep drinking and using, right? If it's working, why stop? It's only when we see the suffering in our addiction that we're inspired to change. You know, the, what Bob and Bill did when they wanted to find, get a new recruit, they would go to the hospitals and, and, and visit or the homes of someone who had just ended a bender. Right? They wouldn't go to them when they were happy and drunk. They'd wait until they were crashing and they were miserable. And then they would go and say, gee, 
you know, I've been there. And they'd tell him what they'd been through. And they'd say, you know, I've actually found out that it's possible to, to stop doing that. Uh, would, you, would you think that might be a good idea? Yeah, please. Yeah, sure. What do I need to do? Okay, just admit your powers. Okay, yeah, good. I can do that. Good. And then uh, turn your will and your life over to the care of God. What? Over to the what? The care of God. Ah, uh, do I have to? And anyway, the story goes on, as you know. But it's this seeing suffering. Suffering is the touchstone of spiritual growth, as they say. That's uh, so vital. And uh, the steps obviously start with this. Seeing our suffering, seeing our powerlessness, step one. But then they bring us back to it in step four. And they kind of give us some juice and some nice stuff, some God and some care and all that, steps two and three and faith. And, and then they go, yeah, but it's not enough to just stop. It's not enough just to see that suffering because you know what? That suffering was caused by an underlying suffering, that underlying craving, that longing for something more. And if, as we know, what happens if you just stop drinking? Uh, you know, even if you're working the steps, many of us find ourselves inclining towards other forms of addiction, whether it's food or sex or relationships or gambling or working um, or food or sex or anyway. Um, <laughs> shopping, yeah. Actually, shopping is okay, though. As long as you have enough money, you can just keep doing it. I'm sorry, that's not true. Um, so we have to then continue to address these deeper uh, aspects of ourselves this, this energy you know is there uh, an alcoholic or an addictive personality type that's different from you know normal people I don't know I think that since the Buddha identified grasping as the cause of suffering, obviously this is a human trait. I think that maybe in our case it gets maybe more amplified or it's, it's a little, uh, gets out of control. Um, but we certainly uh, can start to see this play out and how vital it is that we address that that we keep, keep looking at that if we're going to maintain our recovery and further, if we're going to actually be happy. Hmm. Um, gee, that was really good, but I've still got a lot of time to fill up here. Um, so... Um, Any thoughts, questions? Feed me. Give me something. To, come on, give me something back. Yeah. So I'm working on my fourth step right now. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to try and 
think about resentments and fears from a Buddhist perspective, and I haven't really tried that on so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm just gonna maybe I'll just toss that out. And yeah. Leave it up there. Resentments and fears from a Buddhist perspective. Mm. I I don't know that there's a Buddhist perspective on resentments and fears, but. Uh, Again, you know, if you see what the Buddha identified as the things that poison existence, they were greed, hatred, and delusion, or ignorance. I find it heartbreaking um, what human beings, the way we live, and it has nothing to do with uh, addiction. It's just, I mean, when you think about the misery we create for ourselves with greed, hatred, and delusion. I mean, you, all you have to do is pick up the newspaper. Oh, there's greed. Oh, there's hatred. Oh, there's delusion. It's just, it's all over. It's just human. I think that um, the thing about alcoholics and addicts is that we started to we were destroying our lives with those things and so we're forced to deal with them normal people like dictators and presidents and house majority leaders don't have to deal with these problems on a spiritual level because they haven't ruined their lives with them so they can merrily go on destroying the world <laughs> while their lives are well insulated from it all. Um, and, you know, and as I say, just the, the ordinary person who's not caught up in, these, uh, in addiction can get away with a lot more. I mean, this is one of the things that it says in the big book, too, how, uh, um, you know, we don't have the luxury of self-righteous anger. Uh, so I, I think that this is the gift. When people say, I'm a grateful alcoholic, I'm a grateful addict, this to me is what they're talking about. The fact that they're, the extreme of their greed, hatred, and delusion has forced them to come back to a sane, compassionate, wise way of living. And that if they don't do that, they destroy themselves. Um, so again, I guess I'd not don't so much want to separate us as being um, worse than the rest of the world. Uh, but that ultimately we have this gift that we, that we are forced to deal with, with this stuff that other people can get away with and, and who live in you know, quiet desperation instead of our very loud desperation. Um, You know, fear is so interesting um, because it's so primal. I mean, this is, if you've ever gone on a meditation retreat and, and your mind has gotten really, really quiet and you feel like you're just about to get enlightened, <laughs> or maybe you don't have to be there, it seems like the last remaining barrier is this 
little place in there of fear. There's a, there's a, a little like, no, 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 don't let go, you're crazy, which is the last cries of the ego. Because, you know, if you let go totally, then the ego dies, and then, and as Ajahnamaro says, you know, people are more afraid of ego death than they are of actual physical death. But the thing is that, again, the fear, I don't know, if again, but uh, the fear is, um, is instinctive and it serves this purpose, this vital purpose, right? We, we wouldn't be here if our uh, ancestors hadn't been, hadn't had a good, healthy amount of fear. The people, the early humans who didn't have fear, they got all wiped out by the saber-toothed tigers and stuff because they're like, oh, look at the cute <laughs> kitty cat. You know, other people were like, I'm out of here. You know, and those guys. So all those genes were wiped out. The genes that survived were the fearful ones that were like, <laughs> so the very nervous people survived and passed on their genes. The ones who hung out up in the trees looking. You know, uh, so we're just the result. Our fear is just the result of of millions of years of evolution, which was trying to protect us. The problem is that once you turn it on, how do you turn it off? There's no off switch, and it doesn't care. Survival doesn't care. Our DNA doesn't care about us being comfortable. It just wants us to survive. And it knows that if I am fearful and keep thinking all the time and planning, that that's the best way to stay safe. That's what's kept me and and thousands of generations of my DNA alive. So you're here at the meditation center, you're like, there's no dangers here, it's quiet, I'm safe, I don't have to worry. And inside you're like, wait a minute, are you sure? It could be, what, what am I going to do tomorrow? And what if, I, what if the company goes out of business and I don't get paid? What, uh, uh, is my health insurance going to cover me when I get, and you know, yeah, that stuff just goes on. Uh, you know, it can, it eventually, it can quiet down. There can be some space around it, certainly. You just kind of have to give it the room to kind of run around, run in circles until it just gets too tired and falls over. And your, your ego goes to sleep for 20 seconds. And, ah. That was fun. Yeah, Max. I was just sort of reflecting on um, the four step from a karmic perspective. You know, like how, obviously karma. You know, sort of talking about karma. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I just I sort of feel like you know we create our karma. You know, we we act a certain way, and there's suffering mostly for ourselves and, and those around us and so I don't know I just I was just reflecting really a lot <coughs> on um, you know you were talking earlier about if you you know you live your life a certain way and you keep saying the same things over and over that's how you're going to be it's conditioning yeah. and so that karmic conditioning I think for people who are in 12-step programs is there's just a lot of uh, 
you know, a lot of negative karma to clear up. Yeah. And then the hard part is after you clear it to actually let it go. Mm. It's, it's, I mean, like that, the writing it down and just saying, here, take it. It's, that's almost easy yeah. in some ways, but now like you got to stop carrying it around. So it's, yeah. I don't know. I was just sort of reflecting from a Buddhist perspective, karmically, you know, to deal with that energy, to really let it pass through you on a deep level. Yeah, and and I think maybe some of it can be let go of, and some of it can't, or maybe some of it gets just smaller. Um, I remember Ramdas saying something about uh, I've still got all the same neuroses; they're just not as big anymore. Uh, that's sort of how it feels to me. Um, I was hoping that. You know, I'd get enlightened and all that stuff would just go away or I'd have a spiritual awakening and then I'd, I'd be a different person. I mean, I think that's what the kind of spiritual bypass is. We want to become a different person. I want to uh, stop being me and be some imagined other person who really, you know, I look at some wonderful being, oh, I want to be the Dalai Lama or something, and we, we project what, who they are and imagine, that, oh, that's, I'd like to be that. Not, not likely. Uh, I, you know, you, you remind me of, of one of the ways that I like to think about the connection between the third and the fourth step, which you've probably heard me talk about, but that if the third step worked the way it sounds like it works, it would be the last step. Turn your will and your life over to the care of God, you're done. I mean, if God can't take care of everything, who can why do I have to do any more steps if I've turned it over to God? Which kind of puts the lie to that literal meaning of the step. That, and that this piece out of the big book kind of points to it, which is that we've made this decision, but our karma or our conditioning hasn't gotten the news. Yeah, yeah I've decided I'm going to change. But there's still this whole flow and direction that your life has been going in. And how are you going to change that? So the, the way the steps tell us to do it, and it's very similar to Buddhism, again, is that we're going to examine all that stuff and see what that karma is. I mean, the fourth step, you can say, is an examination of past karma. You're going to first see that, see what the patterns are in there. You're going to share that with someone to bring it into the light. And then you're going to do step six and seven, trying to let go of it and try to change it. But until you examine that uh, material, those habitual patterns, you don't know what needs to change. You don't know even where to go. You're just um, in the dark. You know, it would be nice if it were uh, simpler than that. Um, but we, you know, we have to do this work. Um, there's nobody that can do it for us. There's no pill that can do it for us. Um, at the same time, there it is a lot of power in our intention and in our effort and in our um, just showing up for the process. 
one of the mysteries of meditation really is how how uh, peace does come through it. Does it does it come because I make my mind keep coming back to my breath? Is that what makes me get settled? Not exactly. I, sp- I spent some time talking about this about concentration uh, uh, recently, and um, it's really to me. Uh, again, kind of a step three where we turn our will and our lives over to the process. Again, we want to be in control. We want to come to a meditation class and have someone tell me how to do this so that I can control my mind. So that I can control my experience. So that I can get what I want. And that's not how it works. You show up, and it's just like the program. You show up, and you do the work, and then you turn the results over to your higher power, which in meditation can be the higher power of mindfulness, the higher power of the Dharma. That you're, you don't come in here at, with a ticket that tells you what you're going to get. It's not, you're not signing up to get something. You're signing up to join in a process. And the process requires you to do the work and then to let go of the results. Sounds kind of familiar. But I think we, we f- keep falling into the same trap that we do as addicts, which is that we keep thinking that we're going to control the process, that we're going to get what we want, or we can strive for what you know, we can go after it and get it. You have no idea what's going to happen when you sit down to meditate. You can go up there and do a two-month retreat. You have no idea what's going to happen. I remember well my concept before my first retreat. I was meditating twice a day. I was sitting 45 minutes at a sitting. And every time I meditated, my knees just killed me. My mind just spun out. And I was waiting for the good stuff to come. And then I got convinced to go on a five-day retreat, and I thought, this is going to be great because if I do all that sitting, my knees will get stretched out, I'll get flexible, and I'll be comfortable. And after five long days of silent meditation, I'm going to be so peaceful and blissed out. It's going to be great. So I went, and then reality happened. My knees killed me for five days. They didn't stop. They didn't get better. My mind just kept spinning. It didn't get quiet. And at the end of the retreat, we did this loving-kindness practice where we stared into the eyes of another person for like 20 minutes. And I just cried. And then for the, I came home and I cried for the next week. That was not what I signed up for. (laughs) That was not it at all. Did they not get the message? I think this is time to play my song. But it just, that's what it was like. I came back thinking I was going to write a jig after a retreat. Instead it was like, boom, 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 boom. Um, 
but uh, when in doubt, write a song and, uh, or a poem. Or um, I, I wasn't sober at that time, which didn't help. But, um, but it, it's one of the things that I've realized, one of the reasons I realized I became a musician and a, uh, a writer was that uh, art is healing. Art is very healing. And it's like meditation. It's mysterious. It's not, it's not you, you don't write a song to, so that you can be happy, you know. Uh, any more than you like meditate. Oh, I'm going to meditate so I can be happy. It's a process. Um, we engage in these processes. Um, so, um, it seems like just about enough. Um, and if there are any record company executives in the audience, you can <laughs> talk to me after, after the class. But... Uh, Let's do uh, some loving-kindness practice to close the night. And I apologize if, as you're trying to meditate, you start hearing this song playing in your head. I live with that. Whatever we put in tends to uh, come back out. So gently closing your eyes. And connecting with your heart right now. And breathing into the heart. And bringing to mind someone who's dear to you, who awakens love in your heart. Someone who it's easy for you to love. And as you think of them, Taking in that feeling, embracing that feeling, letting yourself be filled with the feeling of loving kindness. So that you can recognize this feeling. So that you can realize that you have the capacity to love. That this quality is within you. And as you let yourself be filled with this feeling of love for another. See that 
you are actually filling yourself with love, that you are actually loving yourself. For many of us, this is the greatest challenge. To embrace ourselves. To open our hearts to ourselves. Why do we think that we are uniquely undeserving of love. See if you can open your heart, soften, let down any resistance to the idea of being loved right now, and let yourself be loved. If you want to be a loving person, you must include yourself in that loving. Otherwise, there is always a shadow There is a hole at the center of your love, and that hole is you. Let yourself be filled with love. And now let that love radiate out from your heart to all the hearts in this room. Let this space itself be filled with loving kindness, with compassion, with caring. Let that love spill out of this room across the land at Spirit Rock, up the hill to those who are on retreat, across this valley throughout Woodacre. Let that love from your heart radiate out in all directions across America, across the Pacific around the world. (coughs) Let it fill, let it embrace all beings on this planet. No separation between your beloved 
between you and your beloved and all beings on this planet. Each of us uniquely deserving of love. Radiating out into the universe our wish for all beings to be happy, to be safe. to live in peace, to live in love. Feel the vastness of your own heart, the limitless quality No boundaries, no separation, no inside or outside. Just a vast space of love. 